All right, grab a Bible. We're going to the book of Genesis this morning. We're going to Genesis, then we're going to Exodus, then we're going to Leviticus, then we'll go to Colossians, then we'll go to Ephesians. Take that. And some of this will not be on the screen. So ladies and gentlemen, grab a blue Bible if you really love Jesus. Let one of our ushers know. Uh, Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. We've got a whole lot to cover, brothers and sisters. What's that? Sorry. Were you, were you there? Where were you? I was in the nursing room nursing the baby. You were not nursing the baby. <laughs> you were ill-equipped for that task, young man. You may have been feeding the baby, but you were not nursing the baby. Let us be clear. Where, what happened? Where are you going now? Okay. I'm sorry you didn't get a gift card, but you gotta be, there's got to be a birth and you've got to be in the room. I'm sorry. I bless you, though. I bless you to go nurse. <laughs> Genesis chapter 2. Now, we got a whole bunch of background to do. Stick with me if I lose you. I'm sorry. Genesis chapter 2. God forms a man out of dirt. Which, ladies go, that's very appropriate. Now, Genesis 2 verse 7. Then the Lord formed... A man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now, Jewish commentators have a field day with this verse. Because what they recognize is that the Hebrew word for breath and the Hebrew word for spirit are almost identical. And so the idea is that uniquely God creates humanity to be a spiritual breathing. Human beings are the unique combination of the physical and the spiritual in in ways that are different from the rest of creation. In other words, animals are physical, but they're not spiritual in the same way that humans are. And angels are spiritual, but they're not physical in the same way that humans are. Humans uniquely are this hybrid of the physical dirt and the spiritual, God's breath, God's spirit in them. Now, that's not a Holy Spirit that we get when we're in Christ, but it it animates us. God, literally, that part of us that is made in his image, that animates us. That's what he's talking about. So we are a spiritual-physical hybrid. Now, the Jewish commentators take from this, and I happen to agree because it's taught everywhere else, that because we are spiritual beings, everything that we engage in in this life is spiritual. That there aren't spiritual things and unspiritual things. In fact, in Hebrew, technically there's no word for spiritual. Because to have a word for spiritual means that there are things that weren't. And so everything, how you would live, how you would play, how you would work, how you were married. I mean, every aspect of life was a spiritual issue. There aren't religious things and irreligious things. There aren't sacred things and secular things. There's just all of life. Everything is spiritual. Often, what we do in America is we segment our lives and compartmentalize our lives. So I have my work life, I have my home life, and then I have my church life or my religious life. And somehow think that there are different things that apply in each compartment. And very early on, we get the idea that, no, no, because you are a spiritual creature, everything is spiritual around you. Now, I want to combine that idea with an idea that we find in Exodus 19. So go to the next book over. Chapter 19, 
This is a passage, if you've been around uh, for a while, we talk about a lot. Because God decides the way he's going to redeem planet Earth is by forming a community from a man named Abram. We know him as Abraham. And from that community, create a nation. And from that nation will come a rescuer, a deliverer, a messiah. God's plan to redeem humanity has always involved the formation of a community of human beings whose job description it is to put God on display through the way that they live and worship him so that the nations would be attracted to come to faith and repentance in that God. That, that is the way that he's decided to do this. So he rescues this community out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to the base of a mountain called Sinai, and he gives them a job description to be his people. Exodus 19, verse 5. He says to Israel, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me what? A kingdom, he asked non-rhetorically. You'll be for what? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation, right? He asked alone? Is that correct? correct? Correct. Thank you very much. Now, would you agree that this sounds kind of like a pretty epic job description? You will be for me. What's he say? Because I forgot. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I don't know. I was thinking about lunch or something. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, Israel understood priesthood, even though they didn't technically have priests in Israel yet, because what the job of priests was was to literally serve as the intermediaries between human beings and the divine. And so, literally, God calls this people out of Egypt, and he says, here's your job description. You're going to be a whole kingdom of priests. Your job is to be the priesthood of the entire planet. That was the job he gave Israel. And does that sound pretty epic? I mean, that sounds like a pretty big deal, right? It's not like, hey, I just want you to worship me once a week in church. It's, no... Out of the whole earth, you're my people, and you will serve as the priesthood for the rest of humanity. Pretty big deal. Now, even though being a kingdom of priests sounds epic, and there were parts that were epic. I mean, you would celebrate this day of atonement that was this high holy day, or Rosh Hashanah, or, or you would have these festivals that were amazing, and you had the temple of the living God among you. I mean, it was, there were parts of it that were amazing. There were parts that were also really mundane and ordinary. And so turn to the book of Leviticus. And I want to, and this isn't going to be on the screen, but I want to read the headings of some of the commandments that God gives to this kingdom of priests. Because we think, oh, kingdom of priests means you're at church all the time. You're just doing religious stuff all the time. And I want to show you that being a kingdom of priests means that yes, there are parts that are huge and epic, and there are parts that are ordinary and mundane because everything's spiritual. Because we're going to get the same job description ultimately, as a kingdom of priests. And for us, people who think, well, there's my religious life and then there's the rest of life, we just want to demolish that whole way of thinking. And so Leviticus, go to chapter 11, and I just want to read to you the headings of the different commandments. Now, this will raise a bunch of questions like, why does God have commandments regarding mold? 
And, and it is a fascinating conversation that we can get into at another time. There are actually reasons for this, just so you know, that are really interesting to read. I mean, I've wondered that myself. There's a whole, there's a whole train of thought behind this stuff. But I just want you to note, hey, kingdom of priests, that sounds like the most amazing job description ever. It's just nothing but a spiritual high. It's just nothing a mountaintop experience. No, I mean, it is that, but it involves... Clean and unclean food in chapter 11. It's what my English Bible says. And purification after childbirth. Okay, over chapter 12. Over chapter 13, regulations about defiling skin diseases. So being a kingdom of priests involves skin diseases and regulations about them. And then, just exactly what you'd think, in the middle of 13, regulations about defiling molds. Okay, brothers and sisters, molds is a part of being a kingdom of priests. Cleansing from defiling skin diseases, so I'm glad we can be cleansed from them. Right, you flip over the page, cleansing from molds, so we've got molds that are bad, and then cleansing from molds that are bad. Skin diseases that, are, that lead you to be unclean, and cleansing from skin diseases. Look at uh, chapter 15, bodily discharges causing uncleanliness. We've got rules about bodily discharges. It's fascinating. Jump over to 18. We have commands about sexuality. Oh my goodness, sexuality is a spiritual issue. Wouldn't you know it? Chapter 19, the heading says various laws. Now let me read to you what these laws concern. All right? This isn't in your Bible. This, I'm just summarizing it for you. But here's the point. Genesis 2, everything's spiritual because we're spiritual. Exodus 19, God says, I want you to be a community that is for me a kingdom of priests. Put me on display. And we look at that and go, man, that is an epically religious job description. That is awesome. And then you read Leviticus and you realize, oh, because everything is spiritual, being a kingdom of priests includes mold and bodily discharges. And then here are a whole bunch of commandments about parents, about the poor, about neighbors, about work, about slander, about gossip, about forgiveness, about justice, about fairness, about clothing, about hair, about the elderly, about business. Right there in chapter 19. So, God looks at his people, he redeems them first, he says, put me on display, you're a kingdom of priests for me, and then how does he have them live? As Spiritual beings who recognize everything spiritual. So the way of God, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah, the teaching. The way of God encompasses every aspect of life. You'll find commandments on sexuality, commandments on money, commandments on interest, commandments on fairness, on parents and elderly. You'll find commandments on mold and mildew and clothing and hair. You will find commandments on every nook and cranny of human life. Does every nook and cranny of human life matter to God? Absolutely. So the Jews would look at life and say the whole thing matters. Americans look at life and say, okay, I'm going to have time with God in the morning. Now, do you know how absurd that is? That's like saying, I'm going to have time with air this morning. I'm going to spend some time with air. I mean, we'd all look at you and go, so when are you not having time with air exactly? Right? I mean, Jews would look at us and say, when are you not having time with God exactly? Your whole life is under his purview. And so 
the kingdom of priests that we are called to, right? We're called the same thing in 1 Peter. Involves every single aspect of your life and not just the religious parts. Go to Colossians chapter 3. By the way, this is all still background. How's it feel? Feels all right. I mean, it's Father's Day. We'll just go to Leviticus because we can and it's Father's Day. You know, I thought ukulele was spelled with an E. It's a U. I didn't know that. Because I was making fun of it last service and I got corrected. I mean, I wasn't making fun of it. It, it, All right, I was kind of a ukulele. Colossians chapter 3. Now, usually, I count on you guys being in a good mood with me. And you're failing dramatically this morning. I'm happy to see you. I would just, I wish it were mutual, that's all. Is that, is that too much to ask? Colossians 3, verse 17. Now, see how much of human life this leaves out. Whatever you do. Seen exceptions to that? And then he clarifies. Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now that kind of seems like it includes everything. Whatever you do, and in another place he says, whether you eat or you drink, here he says, whether in word or in deed, all of human life, to do it to the, glo- uh, to the glory of God. Now is that actually possible? I mean, I know a lot of us understand the theory behind this, but do we really live this way? Paul invites us to go to Ephesians, flip over. To the left, Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 11. We're in the series in Ephesians, and we're looking at different aspects of the identity that is spoken over us in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Now, Paul is speaking of the church, and notice what he says. Hello. Good morning. If you're new to our community, we're usually dressed up more, more pleasant, more loving, more caring. Ephesians chapter 4, but I'm bitter today. Can I tell you why I'm bitter? I mean, I don't think you have a choice. I'll tell you why I'm bitter. This, this part of my life, from the end of June through August, is typically spent in the wilderness of sports. I don't care about golf. I don't care about baseball. I'm usually prepping my heart for August, which is preseason NFL football. And they're locked out. My Ohio State Buckeyes obliterated. There is nothing bringing joy in my life. Oh, my wife's here. Besides my wife. Happy Father's Day? I'll tell you what would give me a happy Father's Day. I mean, I'm usually planning my fantasy football roster right now. And there's nothing. 
there's nothing. And even college football has been taken away from me. Join the club. All right. All right. What were we talking about? Ephesians 4, 11. So Christ gave, excuse me, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. This is the way Paul speaks of the church. He says, okay, God has gifted the church with certain shepherding leading gifts, and it's the job of those people to train the rest of his gifted people for works of service. So they're to prepare God's people for works of service. Now, three Greek words that you're not going to care about. The Greek word for prepare means to place something in the original condition for which it was intended. So it's used when physicians set a bone back to the way it should be. That's the word that's used. Or when a net is mended so that it can be used again. Or when someone is restored to fellowship that's been rebellious. Or when two political factions are brought together. So it's a really, the word prepare here means to take God's people and to restore them or to bring them to the place that they were originally intended to be. Now, what is that place? Remember, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, you are God's poema, his masterpiece, his work of art, prepared to do good works which Jesus planned in advance for you to do. So the role of the church is to prepare God's people. His hagioi is the Greek word. It's the same word that's used that we translate saints. To prepare God's people for works of diakonia or works of ministry, works of service. Now, anybody who does ministry is called what? A minister. So guess what you're called? In the Bible. Yep, you can say it with a bit more confidence. You are ministers. So the role of the church is to equip and prepare the people of God to be ministers, to do good works, which God in advance planned for them to do. I used to think that the ministers were the ones who were paid by the church. I used to think the ministers were the ones who were on stage. The Bible demolishes this because people will say to me, hey, when did you get into full-time ministry? And what's the answer? When you said yes to Jesus, you were in full, welcome to ministry. You, I wish we had time to make business cards up for each and every one of you. Because literally, biblically, you could write your name and then underneath it we would just print, minister of the gospel. That is what you are. You don't choose it. It is what you are. Because God looks for a group of people through whom and in whom he will be put on display to the world. And because everything is spiritual, guess what it looks like for them to put him on display? Does it look like doing a whole bunch of religious stuff? It looks like whatever you do, 
whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. You, ha you have to understand, and many of you, this is theory, you already know it, that every nook and cranny of your life serves as an opportunity to put Jesus on display. Every single thing. You, none of you have secular jobs. None of you have secular jobs. You are all in full-time ministry. You are a minister, according to the Scriptures. You have the Spirit of God, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. You have the Word of God, and you have the community of God. You have every bit of qualification necessary to serve Jesus right where you live. Because serving Him doesn't mean abandoning your real life. It means in your real life, finding what He's doing and joining Him in it. That's what ministry means. It means all ministry, here's a simple definition of ministry, partnering with God in his work. That's why your ministers, whether or not you're a stay-at-home mom or dad, whether or not you sell real estate, whether or not you do homework for a living, whether or not you're, you drive carpool, or you're a lawyer, or you're an inventor, or an architect, or a broker, None of you have secular jobs. And the fact that many of us live as though they were secular is what gets us into this huge disconnect between what I think should be true of me and what is actually true of me as a follower of Christ. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it to the glory of God. You are a minister. And very often, I mean, this is how I'm evaluated, just so we're clear by Jesus. All right? Were the people of God shepherded, led, and equipped for the ministry they have? This is a staff meeting. Is it not? I mean, if you're ministers and I'm a minister, isn't this a staff meeting of the ministerial staff? How many staff do we have at our church? Yeah, that would be all of you, if you're a follower of Jesus. So welcome to the staff. This is a staff meeting. And the goal here is to remind ourselves that we've been forgiven so we can forgive out there. To be comforted so we can comfort others. To be loved and reminded of the love that Jesus has for us so that we can love others. Right? I mean, this is what we do. You are a minister with a ministry. And guess what? That ministry doesn't involve you learning to do a bunch of religious stuff. It involves you paying attention to the God who is waiting to meet you in your real life. In your real life. With your friends, your problems, your stresses, your family, your annoyances. Your inconveniences, the trials, the tribulations, the joys, that whole bundle of your real life is your ministry. There it is. You don't have to go looking for it. You will encounter it the minute you walk out the door and get in the car. How you drive is a spiritual issue. Says the man who yesterday, in order to get to his daughter's dance recital, the light was red, I looked left, I looked right, and I went straight. <laughs> to which my son Nate said, Daddy, you just ran a red light. I said, son, it was orange. <laughs> he didn't buy that. Train them up in the way they should go, and they will not depart, brothers and sisters. Now, if you're thinking, gee, that doesn't sound like great parenting. Correct. That is correct. That was not. But let me tell you about my daughter's dance recital. It's 50 bucks a month for nine months. 
and then $200 for the outfit, and, and, then, and, then, and then she dances two songs, like three minutes of stage time for all of this work and money, and doggone it, it was going to be up front, and if I didn't make it, I was going to be a little angry. Did I talk about college football? My whole life has just whittled down to nothing. No, I'm just teasing enough. You're here and you're going, hey, this guy seems really odd. <laughs> yep. I blame it on my parents. Now, think about the implications if you're ministers, okay? How do you evaluate a church of ministers? Is it just evaluating it solely on how the dude does up front? I don't think so. I'd like to stand out there and just go, well, how'd you do today? How'd you do last week? As a minister, how was it? How, in your family, and in cubicle land, and selling, whatever you're selling, and doing homework. I mean, how, I mean, isn't that the much more accurate picture? Not how we behave in here that really matters, but what we do out there when we think we're anonymous. When we think it's not religious so I can do whatever I want. I mean, wouldn't a better way to evaluate church to not care about the program, but to actually say, hey, how are the ministers doing? Do we take this seriously? And you may be going, well, okay, this theory sounds great, but how do I actually become a minister? Like, what's that even mean or look like? And so you could say, okay, let's, let's, take, let's take a stay-at-home parent. Do you have disciples as a stay-at-home parent? Yes, they're your children, and they're snotty, and they smell weird, and they dirty things. They are agents of chaos in a world you are trying to bring order to, right? They take laundry, they take a shirt that was worn for 30 seconds, and then it goes into the dirty clothes hamper because they're too lazy to put it back. Or that could be the dads, I don't know, I'm just talking kids right now. Is it possible to be a minister? in an environment like that. Now, if we don't think it is, we're, then the whole thing falls apart. Because this says it is possible to take the laundry and actually just a brief, like, bless them, <laughs> bless Nate, <laughs> bless Jesus, you know, or bless Hannah, or, you know, as you're folding laundry. Is it possible when you're driving to turn off the video screen for the 20-minute drive and to actually engage your children is it possible we're taking the summer and we're turning the TV off? Okay, they don't get much TV anyway, but literally, Nate's going to get two mornings of Wii, because he loves the Nintendo Wii. Hannah gets to pick out a movie once a week, and that's it. Now, what do you think that's going to do to our family? Oh, I don't know. Make us spend time together? <laughs> Relating to each other? Is what you do as a parent an incredibly spiritual and sacred task? Absolutely. None of you have secular jobs. Not one of you. What about cubicle land? How do you make that a ministry? Well, let's talk first about gratitude, that you go to work and have a job. Secondly, let's talk about excellence, that you're not working just for your boss. You're working actually to bring glory and honor to Jesus. And I hate hearing stories from people who are totally evangelistic and they tell everyone about Jesus, but they do their job like crap. Does that bring glory and honor to him? Absolutely not. And thirdly, let's talk about kindness. 
loving our enemies, easy to talk about in here, but the person that emails you, going after you for stuff they did and they're blaming you for it? Is it not the easiest thing in the world to fire back a snarky email? Or to try to cut them down in front of your boss? Or to take credit? Make sure everyone knows you did it? Is it not the easiest thing in the world to gossip a little bit about this person who's just a total idiot in your office? I mean, are these not spiritual issues? Isn't that a better indication of your heart than whether or not you read the Bible this morning? I mean, forgiving those who hurt you, loving your enemies? Sounds like the workplace is an incredible opportunity to practice loving your enemies, right? I just want to invite us. This isn't legalism. This isn't burdensome. I just want to suggest that many of us fall prey to the idea that to really follow Jesus means we have to leave our real life. And that is wrong. And that the way this community should function is that if you sit here for a year or two and you are not better prepared and more equipped to do the work that God has called you to do, then we failed you. End of story, we failed you. Something else has failed. <laughs> we want to be, I, wanna, I, 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 want to, I want us to be, instead of a restaurant, I want us to be like a family-style dinner. Okay, anytime you can do food metaphors, I'm in. What do you do at a restaurant? You show up, you're served. People do the work for you. You order according to your preferences. If it's good, you leave a tip. And if it's really good, you come back, right? Now, does that sound like the way a lot of people engage church? And the way the church tries to engage people? We got to outdo the other church down the street for your business? Can we just call that demonic? Like, that is not of Jesus. But you contrast going to a restaurant with going to our friends, the Joneses. Eight kids the Joneses have. Said Yoda. <laughs> hey, kids, the Joneses have. <laughs> and they do this dress up Sunday night dinner every single week. Dress up Sunday night dinner. And do you think anyone's sitting around there waiting to be served? No way. All 10 of them. And now there are spouses, so it's like 14. All 14 of them, if they're, in, they're in, the, in the area together, they're all pitching in, they're all working. Why? Because it's the shared investment and sacrifice that makes the meal special. So there's a difference. It's, it both involve food. One, the work is done for you. The other, you pitch in because there's something powerful about all of us doing it together. That is what we want to move towards as a community. We want to move away from restaurant thinking, where if it's good, I tip and I come back and repeat business. No, 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 no. That does not honor Jesus. We want to be family style, where every single gift is needed, where every single personality valued, and where the recognition is, yes, we can't all be involved when we gather together like this. But my job is to equip you to be the ministers God has called you to be. And so that when people talk about our church, 
and people evaluate our church, the question really is how are the ministers doing? Not just was it good on a Sunday morning. Who cares? Are you equipped to do the work God has set before you? Would you stand for a second? All right, for dads, this is like fourth standing. <laughs> Close your eyes for a moment. And would you just invite God to reveal to you the presence of ministry that sits right before you? The people, the opportunities, the tasks. Would you literally just say, okay, God, where are the burning bushes? Where are they in my life? Where are the things I'm missing? I dare you to go into tomorrow. Today would be even better, but tomorrow would work to whatever school, I guess it's summer, whatever job, whatever activity you're going to go into, and actually ask God, God, I believe there's work here for me to do. What is it? I dare you to do that and see what he says. So for a moment, would you just sit under this call of ministry and ask God what sits before you where he's already at work?